This is Muslim in Plain Sight. I'm Anissa Khalifa. And I'm Khadija Khalil. Join us as we look back at 20 years of the war on terror and how our world changed as we came of age. Assalamualaikum, Khadija. Wa alaikum salam, How are you? I am good. Let's let's get into what we're doing. So this is what we're calling an interlude. In between our interview episodes, we're going to be sort of talking sometimes by ourselves, sometimes with guests about things that we are not able to cover as much in depth as we want to in the regular interview format, which is more focused on like a person's life and their sort of their story and their experiences. So we'll still be talking about you know, our own personal experiences, but we wanted to go into um, maybe some broader views of things and, you know, take a more high level perspective on all of this while also still bringing in our own personal experiences. And before we get into that, we want to share with you the first of the stories that we've received in our call for our listeners' own experiences in your words about how you went through that period like the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and after that. And so this first story is from uh, Medina, who writes, Salam Anissa and Khadija. MashaAllah, I've been enjoying your podcasts. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you and reward you for your efforts. Amin. Amin. Uh, regarding a personal reflection on 9-11, I was a college student in Kyrgyzstan, Central Asia, part of the former Soviet Union. I remember that morning getting a phone call from American friends who were told by their embassy to either come to the embassy or not to go anywhere and stay low until further notice and instructions. The school I was attending was an American school, and the next day we had someone throw rocks into the windows of the building. It was strange and frightening. Most of our faculty and students felt unsafe those several days after. I recall security being tightened on our small campus. I didn't quite understand what was going on at the time, but as I look back at it now, it makes sense that people would be upset at the quote-unquote Americans who were about to unleash their anger on the Middle East. Watching the planes crash into the buildings, it felt unbelievable, as if I was watching some Armageddon movie, except the caption was live from the recording. SubhanAllah. I remember being in shock and total disbelief. The unshakable, the untouchable USA was shaken to the core. I didn't feel safe anywhere. And unfortunately, I wasn't a practicing Muslim at the time either, so the fear was real. That's my personal 9-11 story. Salams, Medina. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Medina, because I don't think I have any idea, really, of what it was like to be a Muslim outside of the United States, or especially, like, outside of any, you know... English-speaking country. English-speaking yeah. country, yeah. Um, and it, I think that, yeah, it, I, I guess it's definitely a very different experience. Yeah, I agree. We spend so much time in our own experiences. We rarely go beyond the scope of the language space that we inhabit. Absolutely. So the idea that there's these complicated relationships that people can have, you know, for example, with the US, being in an international school while being in a country like Kyrgyzstan, there's different forces that tug you in different directions, right? And that you have to negotiate. And that's something that I think very few of us give thought to. So really, Jazakallah Khair Medina for sharing that with us. It gave us a lot to think about. Yes. 
So I have been very ambitious with what I wanted to talk about in this outline. Because I was like, are you sure you can talk about all this? But what I wanted to do I'm was... I'm sure you can. Of... <laughs> Inshallah. We'll see how it goes. I actually got this idea. I was listening to um, the Very Excellent Citations Needed podcast with uh, Nima Shirazi and Adam Johnson. When they were talking about basically like deconstructing and dismantling all of the fictions that were being passed around right after Colin Powell's death, describing him as this noble warrior who did all this great stuff for the country and breaking down like how he was one of the most important architects of the Iraq war and that he, you know, like he covered up um, some really terrible things like the Miley massacre during the Vietnam War and things like that. And so like they were basically talking about how this historical revisionism has whitewash so much of what we talk about regards to what's happened over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's something that we've been thinking about anyway. But I wanted to talk about when we say as Muslims, like what happened after 9-11, like we know exactly what we mean by that. But I think depending on where we are in the world, we might mean something different from each other. Um, And it's probably also something different from what non-Muslims mean when they say what happened after 9-11. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I just wanted to make that a little bit more explicit rather than just sort of throwing those phrases around. And also, it's been over a month at this point since we launched this podcast. It's been nearly two months, right? Yes. We've had some really amazing feedback and we're really happy to hear that our listeners are mixed between Muslims and non-Muslims because that's the goal. And from several of our non-Muslim listeners, we've had those comments that, you know, we had no idea, like we had this view of this particular event and the fact that all this other stuff that was happening that, you know, we as Muslims, we knew, like we knew it from day one. We knew it from before it happened. Every step of the way, there, there wasn't much that we didn't know. But the idea that all of this is hidden from sight from people who are not going through Mm. it. Very deliberately hidden from sight. Very deliberately. But it's also, for some reason, it feels even more shocking now than it did then. I don't know why. Yeah. I, I mean, I think those structures of violent imperialism are much more talked about in mainstream society now than they were 20 years ago for various reasons. So it is weird to think back to a time when like everyone just kind of went into this weird nationalistic fever dream of like jingoism and, you know, aggressive militarism that like either people didn't have any issue with or they were too afraid to push back against. Mm -hmm. And that's not a space that we're very close to now mentally, I think. So it does feel it's difficult to think about in some ways. So what I wanted to start with is just, you know, like we've talked about this before, but there was immediately, you know, backlash against Muslims on a sort of individual level, people just carrying out acts of violence against brown people that they saw in their own neighborhoods. Um, The first victim of Islamophobic hate crimes after 9-11 was actually a Sikh man, Babur Singh Sodhi, and -hmm. someone just like took a gun and was like, I'm going to kill this raghead. And he just like shot him to death. And Sikhs have been victims of a lot of hate crimes where people thought they were Muslims. It doesn't, you know, like hatred doesn't work in such a straightforward way because it's not like people are hating you based on some kind of, you know, bigotry is not rational. Let's just put Mm. it that way. Racism doesn't have, you know, a logical foundation. So it does end up affecting a lot of people who might have thought they were immune. Mm. And of course, you know, white supremacy is always at the bottom of all of this. So you can't ignore that fact. So there were... I mean, there's the stories are endless. Um, and if you look for them, you can find them. And then, you know, almost immediately we had this 
we had the, you know, the speech by President George W. Bush at the time, you know, the very famous, you're either with us or against us is how we talk about it. But literally what he said was, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. And it had all of the, you know, greatest hits of the war on terror. Why do they hate us? They hate us for our freedoms. You know, we're going to defeat the evildoers. I think his axis of evil thing came out a little later, right before the Iraq war. But I mean, it was all there. It was just to give you a little flavor of that, if you don't remember it or if you didn't hear it at the time, he, he said, Americans are asking, why do they hate us? They hate what we see right here in this chamber, a democratically elected government. They hate our freedoms, our freedom of religion, our freedom of speech, our freedom to vote and assemble and disagree with each other. And, you know, also then there's this sort of like ultimatum, basically, that he's giving every nation and every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you're with the terrorists. From this day forward, any nation that continues to harbor or support terrorism will be regarded by the United States as a hostile regime. So, you know, this kind of very aggressive, unilateral messaging. And also, two things strike me reading this that I hadn't thought about in a while. One is this framing of, I mean, it's not that I didn't know about this, but it's just this like striking me with new force Mm -hmm. (laughs) as I read it now is that they so effectively framed this as an ideological difference instead of understanding what it was, which was a political response to military invasions and aggressive imperialistic actions on the part of the United States. And instead, that's a very smart thing to do because you're delegitimizing that external force by making somebody into a terrorist. You're saying, well, you don't have the power of a state behind you. And what is a state? Like literally the definition of a state, according to some scholars, um, some academics, is that they have the exclusive power to kill. Like they're the only ones with the right to kill their citizens and other nations' citizens, right? Like as a as a private citizen, you don't have the right to kill somebody according to the law, but the government can kill people. It's fine. That's just, that's part of their job. So you're setting up this dichotomy of like, we're a nation, we can kill whoever we want, but you're a terrorist. You don't have the right to kill anybody. And it becomes like this. It's not somebody with a legitimate grievance. It's someone who is, like ideologically, you know, opposed to our very existence. And that doing that, then it supports that whole thing that they had of like, they could be anywhere, they could be hiding in the streets. It's like, it just makes everyone suspect. Mm. Well, also, they're giving lip service to this thing of like, Muslims are peaceful. We don't have any problem with Islam. Like, so they say this to kind of cover their butts. But in, in practice, it's a war on Islam, but not You know, they've given themselves plausible deniability by saying, oh, well, we don't really have a problem with Islam. It's just these like violent extremists that any Muslim could be one of them, though. So we have to watch all of them. Just saying. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that it artificially imposes this binary with us or against us. I mean, middle ground is a thing. And it took it away. Like when he said that. It just removed the possibility of middle ground or for a space for discussing things, you know? Absolutely no nuance. Yeah. Yeah. And and also, like, it removes the possibility that you might dislike America for any other reason than the fact that you want to wipe them off the face of the earth, right? Right. That there's no way to have a legitimate grievance against the U.S. And if you do, that means that you are, you know, like a hostile force that's Mm. planning to kill all Americans. Like, that's kind of how it created this binary. And it was like that for a long time. Nobody really pushed back against it. And I think that force does remain largely intact. We're still not really allowed to critique the state in specific ways, not without like a vast qualifiers about, you know, this isn't because you're a Muslim or you have to really distance yourself from your Muslimness in order to make those critiques. And I 
feel differently about that actually now. Maybe because you're in an academic sphere where you are doing that now, but I haven't tried to have this discussion for a long time, even for those reasons. But yeah, I haven't tried to have it recently. But I would I would have said certainly in the 10 years that followed 9-11, you definitely couldn't have begun that discussion. But you're right, it might mm. have it might have changed more now, especially sort of post-Trump. Yeah, not only in academia, but I think sometimes academia usually is like a little bit ahead of like mainstream discourse. Um, mm. Like I, for, to give an example, like we were talking about intersectionality in my classes during undergrad in like 2005, 2006. I never imagined that that would be a word that came out into like mainstream discourse 10 years later. But like mm. these things kind of slowly filter out from the academy often. But I think it's more that just, as you said, Trump exposed all of this. So if W was saying, you know, like if his administration was attacking Muslims and, and we'll talk about all the things that they did to Muslims in a, in a second, um, doing all these things to Muslims so that in practice it was a war on Islam and Muslims. But he was saying, you know, you're part of us. You're our friends. Islam is a religion of peace, blah, 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 whatever. Trump was like, no, it is a war on Muslims. I'm not going to lie about that. So in a way, it was like <laughs> More genuine, yeah. uh, more honest about that part of, you know, maybe yeah. one of the few things that he actually didn't lie about. But that being exposed in such an ugly way, it took away the fiction that a lot of Americans were able to tell themselves before that about how blatantly Islamophobic American society was. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a wake up call to a lot of people that otherwise were able to ignore it. Mm. And I think that's why it's become easier for Muslims to talk about what we have endured for the last 20 years in some ways. Can you tell us, um, again, these are things that we know about, but perhaps many people don't. Can you tell us about some of the things that happened to Muslims in those years immediately following the establishment of the Patriot Act and what DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, did? We touched on it a little bit with Zahra, who told us about the wide-ranging implications of it. Mm. But there are some specific things that were really a big deal. Could you explain some of those things? Yeah. So as Zahra said, the Patriot Act was passed very quickly after 9-11. And as she also mentioned, this, this was something that had already been written <laughs> as if it was like ready for something like this to happen. Um, that was passed, uh, I think, pretty unanimously in Congress. We invaded Afghanistan very quickly, within weeks. Mm -hmm. And only one member of Congress, you know, was opposed to that. It was Barbara Lee. She was the sole voice of reason. She's an amazing woman. It's easy to find her speech that she gave that day and explaining why she didn't vote in favor of the invasion of Afghanistan. Amazing speech. And we'll link the speech that Barbara Lee gave on that day, explaining why she voted against invading Afghanistan. It's very powerful speech. And yeah, absolutely watch it. So that happened very quickly. And I mean, we, all, we know, right, when anytime there's a war, all of the nationalism becomes like turned up to 100. Then they started doing this thing called extraordinary rendition. Mm -hmm. And at this point, also, they were just like rounding up people on like the flimsiest pretext that you can imagine, you know, just brown people, Muslim people, people with Arabic sounding names. It was it was an excuse to just detain people who were like just immigrants and they didn't have like so many people were just deported for for no reason. Extraordinary rendition was this thing where, you know, there are certain rights that prisoners have under, you know, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. But if you take somebody to another location in a third country, not where you arrested them, not in the United States, it allowed them to just do all kinds of things. And a lot of this was also, you know, 
civil rights that we used to have that have been suspended by the Patriot Act. So you could detain people indefinitely instead of having to charge them after 24 hours under like the writ of habeas corpus. And, you know, and then, of course, Guantanamo Bay and black sites and, and the use of secret evidence, which like secret evidence had been around since 1995, but it was really aggressively used against Muslims and Arabs even before 9-11. Mm. And in 1999, there was actually a bill introduced in Congress by senators and representatives that were trying to get rid of this because it's unconstitutional. But after 9-11, that just all went out the window. And so many people were charged using secret evidence, which was basically like evidence that they claimed to have, but that nobody was allowed to hear or see because it's classified. And even parts of the trial had to be like, you know, redacted or whatever because it was classified. And so you're basically just... Convicted um, of nobody knows what and goodbye off to jail with you. yeah. Yeah. And you're just... Left with no recourse. Yeah. Like you can't defend against evidence that nobody has seen and nobody can talk about. And who right. even knows if it exists? You know, that's always... Incredibly convenient. Yeah. Yes. And then in the lead up to the Iraq war, which was, you know, this is an issue that has been ongoing and I think is well understood, especially by Muslims, but like just the this long standing tradition of Muslims and Arabs being vilified as either violent men or like oppressed women. Mm-hmm. Like super long tradition of that. We we talked about in episode one, yeah. it's like Orientalism, it's it's racism. It's been around for a long time. And we and mentioned citations needed at the beginning and they did a whole like three or four hour long series on Arab and Muslim representation yeah. in media in Hollywood over the last like 60 or 70 years, I think. Yeah, that's excellent. You should, you know, mm. they did an amazing job. Their guest was incredible, mashallah. Um, and with all of that kind of already sort of laying the groundwork, the way that the media did this heel turn of like complete, just turning into yes men and women after 9-11, like there was no longer even the pretense of, you know, they say like the fourth state, they're trying to keep the government in check and how the media is supposed to be like a watchdog. Nothing, nothing, none of that. It was, you know, I remember very clearly that the Bush administration basically said, if you want to be able to, you know, have access to the White House, you're going to print what we want you to. And they were like, yeah, okay, that was it. Mm. That was it. There were very few media outlets, except for there's this independent outlet, uh, Democracy Now!, um, that Amy Goodman has been, you know, sort of like the main superhero of that for like many years. She's amazing. But like they covered a lot of the, you know, the anti-war protests against the war in Afghanistan, the anti-war protests against the war in Iraq. Like many, many people went out into the streets and protested these invasions and there was no coverage of it on the mainstream media. Nothing. Yeah, I remember the same here. You had like in the run up to the Iraq war, you had a demonstration of like a million people. It was like the million man march. I think you had a similar one in the US. Um, the coverage that it got on mainstream TV was minimal and minimizing. Mm-hmm. You know, they would be like, oh, 100,000 people turned up. You know, the numbers were like that. And it was really like living in a double reality, right? You would be yes. witnessing one thing and then you would be hearing another thing. It was very 1984 esque. Right. And that's like, you can do that when you're in the reality and you know what the reality is. But you're such a small number, like outside of that, anyone receiving any news of it would be getting the false account, right? So then you have this perpetuation of false stories. Right. And on top of that, these officials were making so many false claims and 
most media outlets were not fact checking any of this. Like if you look at all the fact checking they did of, you know, Trump's lies and every day they'd be like, Mm -hmm. he told this many lies and here's it, you know, there was no concept of, oh, maybe the government isn't telling the truth. Maybe we should check all of these outlandish claims that are literally going to cost us and the people that we invade so many lives, Mm. nothing. There was no, you know, like the very little pushback from journalists. I know that for our, you know, generation of American Muslims, there were a lot of us who decided to enter journalism because of this. Mm. Do you think that the reason that that kind of culture exists now is because of what happened then? It's hard to say. I feel like sometimes things have to get so bad before things can get better. I mean, Trump is kind of the definition of the worst so far. So sometimes the problem has to get so serious before people actually wake up and are like, oh yeah, this is a problem. Mm. But then also then maybe it's too late. Yeah. Look at clim- the climate crisis. It's like kind of too late. And there's yeah. still people like, I don't know, it's not really a big deal. Uh. The weather goes in cycles. Yeah. So I think there's just such an inertia of the status quo. Mm. And then if you add to that, the extreme shock that Americans were feeling about what happened, you know, and the grief. And then also there is such a huge machinery of military and economic power Mm. that the United States has at its disposal. And it's so, you know, I don't know if this is the most updated number, but I heard at one point that they had like more weapons and, you know, military might than the next 30 countries after them put together. So like, it's very easy to do a lot of damage. Mm -hmm. If a person gets angry and all they have is a little stick, they're not going to be able to do that much damage. But if they're, they get angry and they have like a tank, Mm. (laughs) you just can't compare. And it's like, really, it's always been very disgusting to me to see these um, American politicians who are like, you know, they'll pick on like Iran or, you know, at the time it was Iraq and they'll be like, oh yeah, they have nuclear weapons. (laughs) Like, or like they'll talk about how India and Pakistan have nuclear weapons. And you're like, like, well, so do you. There's this this subtext of like, how dare these brown people, how dare they try to have anything like as powerful as what we have? Mm. Like the world belongs to us. Like we are the only ones who have the right to own these kind of things. Yeah. And there's never any like acknowledgement of the hypocrisy in that. But it's it's like so embedded in the way that we talk about all of this. that Like it just kind of, you know, like you just are used to it. It's like the water that you swim in and you kind of... for a lot of people, like, you know, if you're not the direct target of something like that, then it's hard to notice mm-hmm. how wrong it is sometimes. And I think for a lot of Americans, that's how it was. And back then, like we talked about this in episode one, but like there are a lot more. I mean, in one sense, it's made us more polarized. But in another sense, we have so many more narratives about the world now available to us yeah. in terms of what we can consume as media about the world. And back then, it was very what is on the news, what is in the newspaper, what's on the radio. Must be the truth. Mm. It's really your only perspective, unless like you were saying in episode one, you know, like we had access to these diasporic networks of information, whether that was newspapers from back home or community networks telling us what's happening on the ground in like Syria or Or just separate media machinery, which we did have. Yes. You know, one of the things I've never gotten used to, because you just noted that that people are so used to hearing this particular kind of rhetoric against other nations who dare to have nuclear weapons. I think it's one of those things that, and this is probably why I'm so angry all the time, like I never got used to the blazing hypocrisy of those statements. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't know how you get used to it. I don't know how as a person who is reasonable and values intelligence when it comes to viewing the world, I don't know how you can ever get used to those hypocrisies and be okay with letting them go. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And at the same time, like, if you think about how the imperial machine works, so much of it is about knowledge production that upholds the imperial machine. Maybe it's when you're inside the machine, you just can't see the machine, right? And because we've never been inside the machine in the same way, we're like, but the machine is broken. Exactly. (laughs) Well, if the machine is working in your benefit, you never have a reason to question Mm. why the machine is helping you more than it's helping other people. You're just like, oh, well, I have a great life. I'm special. Life is good, right? Yeah. I like being on the top deck. (laughs) The air is good here. Yes. And probably most people don't really think about it too much either. So you might not even know that the lower decks exist right because you never saw them and you never heard about them it's it's mind-blowing honestly but yeah this is like kind of my last point out of this meandering history of uh islamophobia immediately post (laughs) 9-11 but there was also the the nseers muslim registry which if you remember when trump said he wanted to reinstate that people were up in arms but without realizing that he would be reinstating something that already existed. Oh, it was a reinstatement. Yes. I didn't realize either. So actually, 2016 was when Obama officially put an end to that. Like it hadn't been active since 2011. They hadn't been using it since Mm -hmm. 2011, but it was still technically ongoing. And when Trump was campaigning with this as part of his platform, that's when Obama was like, okay, let's shut this down. Because, you know, the only reason to do something is because you're going to make your Republican opponent look bad, not because, like, it's actually the right thing to Mm, do, you know, like, all of his promises to close Guantanamo Bay, which he never actually did. Mm. Anyway, so this was something that started in 2002, and there were some deadlines for, like, people from different countries had to register by different dates, but basically it was over 2002 and three. And it was like citizens and nationals of different countries. There were 25 countries. 24 of those were Muslim majority countries. One was North Korea, because that's always their like, get out of jail free card. This isn't actually a Muslim ban country. Okay. Boomer. Um, Same thing. That's what they did with the Muslim ban too. They're like, but North Korea. So it's not racism against Muslims. You're like, okay. Um, But yeah, so I actually thought that my dad had been fingerprinted for this. But I was talking to him yesterday and he wasn't. I think maybe because we entered the U.S. as Canadians. So even though he was born oh. in Pakistan, maybe he wasn't like considered to be like a citizen or a national of mm-hmm. Pakistan. Um, but the FBI did question him in 2004. What did they ask him? So they were, I think this was around the time we moved to Houston. And my parents were like looking at houses to like, you know, find a place to live. Mm-hmm. And somebody, I think, reported them to the FBI oh, for being, for looking at nuclear power plants. What? I, where, where did that come from? Yeah. And so this FBI person just like called my dad up and was like, we have some questions for you. We had to report that you're like checking out nuclear power plants. My dad was like, and he and he wanted to like meet at a coffee shop. My dad was like, no, come to my office. <laughs> oh, good power move, Meanwhile, dad. Yeah, I mean, my dad's. My well, sure. And he's like, just come to my office. And then so like the guy came and my dad was telling me, I remember at the time, mm. he knew every detail of like all of the fact that he was, you know, in a leadership position at the masjid and the place that we had lived before and like all this stuff. I mean, obviously they know everything mm. there, but it's like, 
quite sobering to have this person just show up and be like, yeah, I know all these details about your life yeah. and your family. And like, and like that realization when you know they've been staking you out and stuff. That's, yeah. Yeah. And this was also in the era, like Zahra was mentioning, where most of our leaders were like, yeah, just if the police want to talk to you, mm-hmm. just talk to them. Like, we didn't do anything wrong. And like, we realized later that that wasn't really, that doesn't protect us, yeah. basically. But at the time, we were like, well, you know, there's no evidence. What can they do to us? Mm. And it took a while for it to sink in that, like, especially because, and I want to bring this up, I, I wanted to bring it up very explicitly, that for non-Black American Muslims, many of us had this idea that the police are good and they're on our side because we had absorbed that idea from, like, mainstream white culture. Good immigrants, right? Because yeah. when you come to this country as an immigrant... What do you absorb? You absorb mainstream white culture. Mm. And white culture tells you that cops are good and they're here to help you. Mm. And you should call them if you're ever in trouble. But black Muslims already knew that that wasn't the case, yeah. you know, and and they were already feeling the brunt of the violence of the state, whether you're innocent or guilty. Mm. And for them and for other black people, all of the things that, you know, as Zahra said, once the government takes more power, it's never going to give that up. Yeah. So all of the extra power that it gave itself with like the Patriot Act and, you know, all of these things, you know, with the incredible ramping up of the militarization of the police that happened because of the Department of Homeland Security, which just had like all this extra money for tanks and guns. And they didn't have anywhere to put that. So they just gave it to like the police forces, which is why we had tanks in Ferguson mm-hmm. when people were protesting for Black Lives Matter a few years ago. And so that all is connected, you know, it's all connected. It's connected to this historical suppression of non-white people in this country. And I think it's something that non-Black Muslims need to really think about, the fact that we never cared about this until it affected us as well. So, yeah. Mm. Before we move on from this part of the discussion, I wanted to mention one more thing, which I'm not sure has come up specifically in our previous conversations, but we've certainly mentioned informants in the masjid before, like both Zahra mm-hmm. and Willow mentioned um, the ubiquitous presence of informants. I want to just quickly point out that they weren't there just as a kind of passive addition to our communities, but informants and agents, like the ones who had infiltrated our communities for intelligence purposes, actually actively harmed our communities in so many ways. And they had um, their own particular operations, which were to deliberately radicalize and... Entrap, basically. Right, right. And they would prey on the most vulnerable in our communities, particularly people who were mentally ill, people Mm -hmm. who didn't have support systems. And yeah, they would basically carry out these entrapment schemes where they would spend, you know, days, months, weeks, years. Yeah. Pretending to be Muslim, insinuating themselves into our communities. Yeah. And inciting people into committing crimes they would never otherwise have committed. And like, I've seen it being talked about quite a bit now, but I don't know, again, how widely that conversation reaches. But I know it's not just one story or two or a few isolated incidents. It was an actual policy that they had. Oh, absolutely. Can you talk a bit about that? So I'm not probably the best person to talk about this just because I wasn't really around. Like I didn't do my undergrad here in the US. So I graduated from high school in 2003. And this was, I think, It happened a lot on university campuses, Mm -hmm. from what I understand. It also happened in masjids. Mm -hmm. 
But because that was around the time that I became very severely ill, I kind of stopped going to the masjid. There were many years where I was at home by myself. And then when I was eventually able to go to university, it was in Canada. And it did also happen in Canada. There's this really high profile case called the Toronto 18, very similar to American intelligence agencies. There's, you know, Canada, they have CSIS. I don't know if in the UK they have this too, but there are also... I think the big case here was like Jihadi John, if mm. I remember correctly. And then we had, you know, a really a couple really high profile cases. There was a Canadian who was in Guantanamo Bay, Omar Khadr. There were cases of extraordinary rendition that CSIS was involved in. So like definitely was also happening in Canada. The entrapment was happening all over the U.S. From what I know, like I obviously don't have personal experience of it in my own community, but I've heard so many stories. And it's ironic, isn't it? Where on one hand, they were pushing this narrative of like, any Muslim could be part of one of these sleeper cells, whatever. Meanwhile, Muslims are just like going around their, you know, daily mm. business. But it's actually the FBI agents that are infiltrating our communities and making us suspicious of each other because anyone could be an FBI agent. Right. And so they're doing the thing that they're accusing us of doing in order to like catch us out in something. Mm -hmm. Just like wild, so wild and so sickening. But yeah, like this ruined people's lives. It ruined people's lives. They ended up in prison. Um, it destroyed families. <sighs> the repercussions are still reverberating until today. Yeah, I read a really interesting article about this quite recently. I'm going to see if I can dig it up so that we can share it with our listeners. And one of our upcoming guests specializes in uh, tech accountability and surveillance. So we're going to ask her about the surveillance aspect to this yeah. more from like a tech perspective, mm -hmm. because that's fascinating and infuriating um, and something that we need to talk about. It's funny that we talk about, you know, Muslims going about their daily lives, because actually we did. Yes, there was all of this big stuff happening, but on a day-to-day -day level, many of us were just living our lives. And this particularly strikes me now because I am thinking of that year, which was my last year of secondary school, which you would call, I think, senior year of high school. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's because I had a very sheltered school environment, but I don't think I really felt a big difference in my school life in that sense. And it wasn't until I got to university that some of those things became more immediate for me or in my sort of outside school life those things struck a bit harder. Like my family business was actually attacked very soon after 9-11. And that that had quite big consequences because we got shut down after that. Mm. And so there was all of this stuff going on, but still there was that weird little bubble of quasi-security. I wouldn't say it's exactly security or like necessarily a safe space. It was just a very privileged space where those things kind of became irrelevant because the concerns that we had as Muslims post 9-11 didn't quite make it into that space. And I went to a school which was very white, middle class, affluent. Um, I was one of four hijabis in the whole school. Oh, no, no, no. At that point, one of two. <laughs> in 2001, <laughs> one of two hijabis left in that school. So I was the only one. Oh, 2001, wow. I was the only one in my school. Oh, yeah. gosh. I mean, it was hard enough just being two, but being one, that's even, yeah. Yeah, so that particular environment was interesting. And it didn't prepare me in any way for my post-school university life and everything since. Mm. 
You know, saying that, like you mentioning that your family business was attacked, it also reminds me, I mean, there's so many things, but it also reminds me of how many charities mm -hmm. that were, you know, Islamic charities or that had some type of name relationship to Islam. So many of them were just like, you know, arbitrarily connected to quote unquote terrorism mm -hmm. on very thin pretexts and were just like shut down. And so like, even till this day, mosques and charities have to be so careful mm. and even I have friends and you know we'll talk about like coalitions and things like that but I have interfaith coalition partners who are at churches and they can say things that as a mosque we would have to be very careful about saying you know they can mm. do things that because all anybody needs is an excuse to get you investigated by like yeah. the IRS or whatever, like as a nonprofit organization, there are so many things that you have to be careful about. And often like as a Muslim organization, all you need is suspicion to shut you down mm. completely. There doesn't need to be evidence. There doesn't need to be even a, like a legitimate complaint. Yeah, We've been on this sort of like defensive for a really long time. And it's kind of like what Mona was saying about having to put up this front, not because you're trying to be fake, but just like out of self-preservation, yeah. like you just have to be extra, extra careful. And I do feel like finally, at least personally, I don't know about, you know, other people, but I do feel over the last like five, six years that like I'm able to not care anymore mm -hmm. and just say what I want to say and not feel like I have to be an ambassador or a good example or to prove to anybody that like Muslims are good or, or they're normal yeah. or you know and I think for many years we kind of felt like we had to do that because we were in danger first of all yeah. and second of all we felt like if we don't show people that Muslims are just regular human beings trying to live our lives like nobody else is going to do it mm. like there's such a huge weight of Islamophobia that's being churned out it's a business it's like millions of dollars are behind this industry right mm. it's an Islamophobia propaganda industry it's not just random actors saying things there's a lot of money behind it there's a lot of political weight behind it there's a reason that it's so powerful there's all kinds of interests that are invested in making sure that muslims continue be, to be the enemy mm -hmm. um, and maybe we can go into that with some of our you know professor academic guests that we're gonna have soon yeah. but for a long time we were like well we're the only bastion of truth in the face <laughs> of all of this like we have to say something otherwise like our voice Maybe our voice will get buried or silenced, but if we don't say anything, like, we're not going to even be part of this conversation. Mm. But now I feel like rather than trying to be part of a conversation that somebody else is controlling, you can just have your own conversation yeah. in a public space where if others want to listen, they are welcome to listen. Yeah. I mean, this kind of goes back to also what Willow was saying about how for all of these years, immediately post 9-11, let's say 10 to 15 years after that, that we were all in this sort of defensive crouch, that we were in the trenches together, and mm. that we're beginning to sort of unpeel from that lump formation that we had to be in. And like, yes, what she said, 100%. And I'm going to go back to me being angry all the time. <laughs> this is going to be a recurring theme. One of the things that I just took so much exception to with, you know, the kind of generalized anger of youth, which I had no shortage of, and like I continue to burn through that fuel on a daily basis <laughs> with no end in sight, is this, you know, how we were told what our beliefs were. Like we had our religion defined to us. We were told this is what you believe and this is what your religion says and uh, this is what you must do. I just found that so angering 
And we were so often forced into this unwelcome defensive stance, which we weren't necessarily originally in. Mm. And again, that perhaps comes of being a little bit younger at that time. Like I personally never subscribed to the need to make myself acceptable to people in terms of like, oh, you know, please like me. I'm not scary. There were things I would do, like I mentioned in one of the earlier episodes, like not wearing all black. And like, so there were things I would do to not incite people's negative emotions. But that wasn't the same thing as asking for their approval to exist Mm. or asking for their permission to be a Muslim in the way that I feel is right or in the way that I believe is right. And like to this day and inshallah I hope for the future, I would never want to be in that position of asking for permission and approval because we can't. That's not what it means to be Muslim. We don't ask for the permission and the approval of our societies and our communities to worship Allah, which, you know, I know these are words that I can say to you that I wouldn't necessarily say in other spaces but also they are words I'm saying to you that are going to be available for, for people outside these spaces mm. to hear. But like, what is our purpose of life? As a Muslim, we don't believe that our purpose of life is, you know, something trivial or personal happiness even. That Those are not the reasons that we do what we do. Yeah, it's true. And that conviction is also something that we, you know, acknowledge as a gift. And at different times in our life, we have different levels of bravery with that. And, you know, we also like, I want to acknowledge that like, not everybody is in the position of safety and comfort to be able to, even if they have that belief to be able to practice the way that they might want to. True. We're in different situations. Mm. Like, I also come from a very privileged background. I have had the freedom to practice my religion the way I want. And I know that you know, not everybody has that mm, ability and that privilege. True. So acknowledging that, but also like, absolutely, I understand what you're what you're saying. And but I think to also go ahead to just rein myself in there. That is more a reaction to the fact that I have never fit in in my life. I actually mm. like that feeling. I don't know what that feels like. And so it's normal to me to not fit in. It's normal for me to be the weirdo. It's normal for me to be thought of as the fundy. And again, that's a word I really hate using, but I also understand that it's a label that's applied to some of us who are a little bit, you know, too Muslim and too counter-cultural in those ways. So yeah, yeah that wasn't coming from a, I'm too good for, <laughs> I'm too good for the rapple. That's coming from a... No, no, I, I know just, it wasn't. Yeah. I just wanted to like explain. And, and I think also... It's not like there wasn't racism and Islamophobia before 9-11. Obviously, it's been there. But what you're saying about the way that people defined our religion for us, it was like we were put on the outside of this, like we were turned into enemies, like public enemy number one, at the same time that there was this like incredibly violating, invasive, twisted kind of dissection of what people thought that we believed. Mm -hmm. And that was something that had always been very personal and private because as a Muslim living in a white majority country, it's not like you live your faith that publicly. You live it in your home. You Mm -hmm. live it personally. Probably it might affect the way you dress and the way you Mm -hmm. are in the world, but you're not it's not a communal practice yeah. in the same way that it is in like a Muslim majority country. Yes. You have, you know, like your community spaces, your faith spaces, your home, and then you have like your Muslim only friend groups or mm-hmm. whatever. But in general, in your daily life, like there's kind of this 
baseline understanding. There's your secular self and your Muslim self, right? Yeah, and also like one of the things that liberal democracies tell us is that, you know, there's a separation of church and state. Everyone has the ability and the right to practice their faith the way that they choose. The state doesn't interfere in that uh, unless you're Muslim, Mm. right? And then all of a sudden, (laughs) all those things break down. There's no such thing as having the right to, you know, believe and, yeah. and practice the way you want. Your everything that you thought was sacrosanct and sacred is suddenly being invaded in a really upsetting way. Mm. And so you feel exposed and violated in a way yeah. while also being excluded. So it's like this weird, like coming close and moving far away at the same time. Mm. That makes sense. It's like- being seen and being erased at the same time right yeah it's like you're here we see you but also we only want to see you in this very specific way and if you don't fit into that I mean this whole question of representation is something that I hope we'll get an opportunity to talk about later in the series so I'll leave that thought there for now one other thing that is also definitely worth mentioning is that in the wake of the Patriot Act in the US, the Anti-Terrorism Act in the UK, that it led to similar legislation across pretty much the entire world. And particularly in Europe, you we saw the rise of all of this other Muslim-targeted legislation, which, you know, starts with something simple, like uh, not being allowed to wear religious symbols in school in France, mm. which really is a veil. Just like a job ban. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you like what I did there? <laughs> And so you have this thing where you have that watershed legislation which allows all future legislation in that vein to then arise. So it began with a simple little thing. And like, where does it end? It still hasn't ended. And particularly the legislation that has happened in France, in France's neighboring countries and in France's intellectual heirs in Quebec, right? You're just like, Mm. some of this stuff is insane and yet it doesn't get called out for what it is. Yeah. And, you know, and things that were kind of already in motion. So, for example, what China was already doing to uh, Uyghurs in um, Mm. what they have called Xinjiang. like East Turkestan. Yes, East Turkestan. And they had, obviously, like the imperial project had already begun, but this gave them so much more leverage Mm. and so much more freedom from uh, criticism. If they framed it as an anti-terrorism thing, it would be way easier for them to just call people who are basically fighting for the independence of their homeland to just frame those people as terrorists. Right. It's like what you said, that you transformed these political struggles into uh, ideological Ideological struggles. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And like the rise of Modi in India, like there's a lot of complicated politics there. But some of the legislation that has been put in place in India, again, deliberately targeting Muslims in the same way that the Anti-Terrorism Act and the Patriot Act, the the way that those laws were designed to sort of pick out particular types of people and paint them in particular ways, you had this happening everywhere. It wasn't just one country and it wasn't even always in countries where Muslims were minorities. Did we not also see similar things in Muslim majority countries as well? Am I making that up? Yeah. I might have. Well, I mean, not in the same way, but if you look at the war in Syria and the rise of ISIS, I mean, there's so many things. The whole destabilization of like 
entire regions that happened as a result of the invasions of the war in Afghanistan and Iraq, like these things have had ripple effects that have changed the world forever, have created so many, like displaced so many people, killed so many people. And like the United States has this tendency to overestimate its own importance (laughs) and underestimate it at the same time. So on one hand, they do things and they're like, oh, well, it's just about us. Like, this doesn't have anything to do with anybody else. Meanwhile, their actions are having ripple effects over the entire globe. Mm. And they're never going to take responsibility for any of that. And I mean, this is a long pattern, right? If you look at all the interventions, quote unquote, they did in like South America and, you know, what they did in the Philippines. I mean, like, this is a long story of American imperialism that we don't really talk about because we're, at least we don't talk about it because we're in the heart of the empire. But at the same time, like, they overestimate their importance in terms of like, we were hurt. The whole world has to pay because we were hurt. Mm. Like everyone has to cry for us. We don't cry for anybody else. And like you had this divine right of uh, vengeance. Yeah. And, th- and that's like the two sides of American exceptionalism. That's so medieval, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like this new secular version of that. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's why, even though, like, you know, I apologize for making this extremely US centric this episode, but I feel like, you know, we had three American guests. In the future, we're going to have people, you know, from the UK and from other places. But like, it really was the epicenter of so many of the things that happened later on. And we wanted to kind of set the stage in that way. And so. And so. To wrap up on a note that is not as miserable as the previous hour has been, what can we do to counteract the things that have been done over the last 20 years? as individuals and as communities? That's a big question, Khadija. (laughs) If you could say one thing. Well, so first of all, I think that's partly why we're making this podcast is to bring our own narrative to the forefront when it's always been kind of squished under the heels of so many other people's narratives. Um, Squished sounds so cute. Don't you mean crushed and ground? (laughs) Decimated. (laughs) (laughs) annihilated oh yeah that's a good one yeah i can do this all day (laughs) let me get my thesaurus out um but no i think you know going back to what we were talking about a little earlier about how we look back at some of the things that were said and done in you know the early 2000s and we don't think that that would happen today or that that would pass so easily today even Mm -hmm. if it still happened without criticism in the way that many of those things did i think there is more awareness of the ways that the state oppresses its own people. And I think it's partly because of where we are. And I can only speak for my own country. Where we are as a country is wealth inequality has only increased over the last 20 years. We are no longer in the prosperous 90s. The pandemic has only exacerbated a lot of these inequalities, whether that's in terms of race or socioeconomic status, healthcare, the way people live, where they live, how they live the way that the climate crisis is affecting everything about our lives and it's only going to get worse. Like all of these fracture points Mm -hmm. have become so much clearer to us in the last 20 years. Many people thought that the American political system was a bit slow, a bit, you know, lumbrous, but generally, you know, pretty foolproof and with checks and balances Mm. and there to protect us and we could trust in it and the institutions we could trust in it. And many people were uh, very shocked to find out that that wasn't true with the election of Donald Trump. So you said checks and balances and something inside me just went. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but but you don't understand how deeply that is 
programmed into you as an American child. You know, the sort of godlike status that the Constitution has in people's minds mm-hmm. and the way that we are taught that this political system is so noble and so good. And I mean, okay, yes, mm-hmm. you know, like we had to add some amendments here and there to like get rid of that pesky thing called slavery. But like at heart, you know, the founding fathers, you know, they set down these really great principles and it was just a matter of us figuring out how to practice those principles properly mm. in a good way. I mean, I've always said that Americanism is a religion. I mean, I think it's pretty inextricable from Christianity, but that's a, that's okay. another topic. We can, we can talk about that another time. But I think, you know, that sort of bedrock of like infallibility that the U.S. government and the American system had for a lot of people has kind of fallen away from their feet mm-hmm. because of a variety of different factors all coming together. So I think there is much more of a willingness from ordinary Americans, some of them, Some of them have gone the opposite way. Mm -hmm. Many people have gone in a totally different direction and are doubling down on extremely nationalistic, racist kind of ideas about this fictionalized America of the past Mm -hmm. that they want to go back to. Yes, absolutely. There are many people like that. But I also feel like this fiction of the silent majority that the Bush administration was able to use in 2003 to justify like, you know, the invasion of Iraq, which was completely, completely illegal from an international law standpoint. Like there was a preemptive invasion of like based on nothing. But they were like, oh, the silent majority is behind us. Like, I don't know that that would work quite so well nowadays. So I I think that gives me hope. And maybe I'm like insulated in my little bubble of like, you know, activism. And and I and I'm also talking to people who think like me, but there is much more of a willingness to work in coalition Mm -hmm. across different groups and even within groups that used to be a lot more monolithic in their understanding of who they were. They're doing better now. You know, like, for example, as an Asian American, I'm seeing Asian American spaces do better in terms of not just being represented by well-off East Asians. And and those organizations are starting to recognize, oh yeah, like there are other Asian Americans that we don't talk about. And, you know, this model minority myth has been harming us for a long time and we're not going to buy into it anymore. Mm. Or like Muslim organizations that have been historically dominated by immigrant Muslims who are starting to like sort of wrestle with the fact that they've ignored Black Muslims for a really long time and that there's a lot of like anti-Blackness that nobody talks about. Mm -hmm. You know, like, and I think we had to come out of that defensive crouch in order to sort of look at ourselves and each other with a little bit more nuance and complexity and, you know, criticism, because like, you don't want to bring up those like skeletons in your closet when everybody is like waiting for the bomb to drop on their heads, you know? So, you know, I think it's a sign that like, I think it was Willow that said this, that we're like not feeling as embattled Mm -hmm. that we can have these conversations with each other and that and I think also like at least here in the U.S. I know the election of Donald Trump made a lot of minority groups realize that we can only really depend on each other Mm -hmm. because it was I think very sobering for many of us to see a majority of white men and a majority of white women vote for Donald Trump despite him basically having demonized every single minority group that he could think of, including women. Yeah. But 57% of white women still voted for him. I will never forget that number, by the way, as long as I live. It's a horrifying number. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like you kind of realize at a certain point, like, that you need each other. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate that you don't realize you need each other until things are desperate. But, you know, humans are, we're flawed. (laughs) But we're here now. We're here now on that counts, right? Yeah. I don't know how hopeful that is, but that's kind of where I'm at right now. And I think the other thing that has made me hopeful is we focus so much on like 
national politics. And I think as Muslims, we think a lot about global politics. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of unavoidable because our communities are so diverse and we know and love people that come from all over the world in a way that maybe the church down the street is not like that. You know, maybe they all are like probably from very similar economic backgrounds, similar ethnic group. Mosques are so diverse. Our communities are so diverse that we end up having, like we mentioned in episode one, we end up having these sort of networks of connections with people all over the place. And we identify with other Muslims, like just on a human level, because we're like, oh yeah, like you're my people. So our hearts bleed for like Palestine and for Uyghurs in China and for like the Rohingya and for, I mean, there's so many groups that we could mention. And so many of our brothers and sisters are suffering right now um, because of the way that like the lives of Muslims have just been devalued. Because of blood is cheap. Yes, for so long. And so it's painful, but there's very little that we can do about that. And there's also very little we can do about our own country's national politics other than like, you know, vote in the presidential election and send letters to our our senators and representatives. And I mean, we should absolutely do that. But I think what's given me hope is getting involved in my local politics Mm -hmm. and beginning to understand how much that actually affects your daily life um, in so many ways. And so I would encourage people to get involved locally because it also helps you to sidestep a lot of the toxic rhetoric that's happening. I know it's happening in American politics. I don't know how it is in the UK, Lisa, but like the partisanship is so poisonous in this country, mm-hmm. but local politics are nonpartisan. So you can just sidestep a lot of that. I mean, that doesn't that's mean that true. people won't yeah. have those kind of ideologies, but like you don't have to engage with that. Mm-hmm. You can just be like, okay, here's what's happening right now in our neighborhood. People are getting evicted because property taxes are too high. That's something I'm working on right now. Like this is something that you don't have to bring anything else into. You just be like, here's the issue. Let's gather a bunch of people who care about this issue and like work on it. And you can materially make people's lives better. And I think that's the real value of coalitions is not when you do it like in this identity based way where you have to like pick one person from each group and have like a little like a nice little rainbow of different people coming together and holding hands and saying kumbaya. But it's like, I am invested in my neighbor's happiness and health and comfort doesn't matter what my neighbor looks like mm. and for ha- that to have like reciprocity yeah and for everyone to just be in the same boat together in a, in a real way not just like a performative way mm-hmm. that was really beautiful Michelle and I think that's the perfect place to leave it Jazakallah here for sharing that oh thanks I feel like it kind of went on too long <laughs> no that was amazing so if you want to continue this conversation with us you can find us on social media and our Twitter is at MIPSPOD, M-I-P-S, pod. And you can email us at muslimandplainsight at gmail.com. Please send us your 9-11 stories or your post-9-11 stories or just your reflections on the conversations that we've had and what more conversations you'd like us to have in the future. We would love to hear from you. Absolutely, we would. And you can subscribe to the podcast through the app of your choice or by going to muslimindplainsight.com. Yes, and we continue to appreciate your support, whether that's like sharing um, the podcast with your friends and family or rating and reviewing us on your podcast app of choice or even donating. Really appreciate all of your support. We're doing this in our do we have free non-existent time? Free time. <laughs> we are not existent free time and out of our own pockets. So yeah, we appreciate any support and we appreciate your duas most of all. Absolutely. And that's all from us. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam.